Section 11 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Second Decade, A.D. 1337 to 1347, Chapter 1, The First Invasion of France, Part 1. The second decade of Edward III's reign opens amidst the din of the latest preparations for the great contest called by French historians the Hundred Years' War, though, like the long Peloponnesian struggle of old, it was not continuous, but ever and anon renewed itself in successive outbursts with long intervals of comparative languor and inaction. Although King Edward had gained from his faithful commons their sanction to his designs upon France, it is impossible and indeed unnecessary to believe that such a chimerical project as that of subjugating a proud and warlike race, far exceeding their own in numbers, and alien in origin and institutions from both constituents of the island nation, should ever have been seriously entertained by the mass of the English people. Indeed, so far was the annexation of France from being desired by the nation at large, that serious apprehensions were evidently felt, lest in such an event our kings should be once more what they had long been, continental rather than English powers, and England should again become a mere dependency of a richer and more imposing dominion on the mainland. Two years later, in 1340, Edward found it necessary to give an assurance in a public paper that his assumption of the title of King of France should in no way prejudice the rights of his English subjects, and in a statute passed the same year it is declared, that the people of our realm of England, of whatsoever estate or condition they be, shall not at any time be put in subjection or abasance of us, or of our successors as kings of France. The fact is there was nothing in those days corresponding to that judicial tribunal of public opinion with which now rests the ultimate decision on all such questions as that of peace or war. The representatives of the commons, diffident in the exercise of newborn rights, shrank from giving an independent judgment on state affairs. There were no newspapers, no leagues, no public meetings, and on all questions of imperial policy, the opinion of the king and the nobles was practically that of the nation. As for the aristocracy, their want of legitimate occupation and resources made war at all times a welcome opportunity for escaping from the tedium and monotony of a domestic life, without books, without news, and without society, in a country home which was more like a garrisoned fortress, surrounded by the squalid huts of an unfriendly and ill-conditioned peasantry. But war with France was war under its most splendid and attractive form. It promised to afford a noble field for the display of the knightly qualities which were most highly prized in that age, when the spirit of chivalry was at the zenith of its ascendancy in Europe. The magnitude of the issues involved in battles wherein kings carried their crowns on the point of their swords, the love of adventure, the unbounded career open to successful valor, the rank and gallantry of the combatants, the passionate hopes and fears of the partisans on either side, all contributed to make the impending struggle with France the center of interest and the most brilliant theater of action in the world. The two cardinals sent by the Pope remained four months in England, 
they had been received with all the greatest respect and ceremony. The Duke of Cornwall, Archbishop Stratford, and the Lord Mayor of London meeting them on their arrival, and the King welcoming them in person at the lesser hall door of the palace. During their stay they lived as was customary, at the expense of the English clergy, and the cost of their entertainment was fifty marks a day, a sum probably equivalent to five hundred pounds of our money. We read, moreover, of orders of protection given to two ships bound for Bordeaux to fetch one hundred and fifty hogsheads of wine for their use. If we may judge from a passage in a contemporary poem, The Vision of Piers Plowman, these prolonged visits were not regarded with much favor in England. The country is the cursiter that cardinals come in, and where they lie and linger, and etc., they arrived in November, and Edward had given them a promise that he would not invade France before March. But in the meantime, King Philip had resolved to make himself master of Guienne before Edward could arrive to defend it, and early in February intelligence was brought to England that the French had already laid siege to certain towns in the Agenois. Notwithstanding this, Edward issued a proclamation on the 24th of that month declaring that at the instance of the cardinals he had postponed the invasion of France till midsummer. But with characteristic inconsistency, he wrote the day after to order a levy of 1,000 men from Wales to be sent to Sandwich and as many more to Portsmouth for immediate embarkation, and a fortnight later directed his admiral to arrest 70 large ships to carry them and others to Aquitaine, intending to invade from that quarter and from the north at the same time. And now news reached him that the French had actually landed at Portsmouth and burnt it and were laying waste the country round. Yet still he lingered, and it was not till the month of May that he determined to cast aside the officious meddling of the Pope and formally revoked his promise to the cardinals. Then issuing orders for the more vigilant guardianship of the south coast, and appointing his eldest son, recently created Duke of Cornwall, then eight years old, to be warden of the realm in his absence, he sailed from Orwell for Flanders with two hundred ships, and first set foot on the continent in anger, on July twenty-second, 1338. It was fortunate that the fleet of transports was strong, for Philip had gathered together a vast number of ships manned with mercenaries from Genoa and Spain, which constantly cruised about the channel, intercepting traffic and making descents on the English shores. The utmost alarm was felt, and the great council, acting in the name of the young duke, issued orders for the fortification of Southampton and of London itself, with stones and palisades toward the Thames. A few months later Southampton was attacked, pillaged, and burnt on a Sunday while the inhabitants were at Mass. Faithful to his engagement to preserve the neutrality of Flanders, Edward disembarked at Antwerp, which belonged to the Duchy of Brabant. On his arrival there, however, he found himself beset with difficulties and mortifications. The allies who had promised him their active cooperation hung back and began to clamor for the payment of their subsidies, and a year was wasted before he could get them together under his standard. Meanwhile, 3,000 only of the 20,000 expected sacks of wool had arrived, and Edward wrote 
first anxious and then peremptory letters home, directing that wool should be taken wherever it could be found, whether within the liberties or without, of all persons ecclesiastical or secular, sparing none. Whether the full tale of wool ever arrived or not, we have no means of knowing, but anyhow, the king's available resources were altogether inadequate to meet his expenditure during this period of forced inactivity, with an army of near 12,000 men quartered in a foreign town, and large subsidies to his allies continually being due. To the Duke of Brabant alone he had promised, for what proved to be very doubtful services, the enormous sum of 60,000 pounds, about equivalent to a million of the money of our time. A few months later, such was his distress for money, occasioned by this and other demands, and aggravated by the extravagance of his court at Antwerp, that he was compelled to pawn his great crown, his little crown, and the queen's crown to the Archbishop of Treves in security for a loan of 61,000 florins. At last, however, on Edward's urgent entreaty, his allies met at the village of Halle to decide whether they would fight for him or not. They were all of them feudatories of the empire, and the conclusion they came to was that they could not go to war against France without the consent of their overlord and suzerain, Louis of Bavaria. Now the emperor was already in treaty with King Edward for the supply of troops, and many motives combined to dispose him to a closer union of interests. Germany and England had long been resolutely bracing themselves up for political and religious independence, and Louis, who was a wise and far-seeing prince, sympathized with these aspirations, and had not forgotten the fact that the English schoolman William of Ockham had been one of the most vigorous and efficient champions of the empire against the tyrannical assumptions of the papacy. Indeed, the chief cause of the emperor's readiness to take the side of England lay in his relations to the pope. When the double election to the empire already mentioned took place, Pope John XXII, one of the most worldly, avaricious, and implacable of all the successors of St. Peter, wishing to secure the imperial dignity for his own patron, the French king, had opposed the claims of Louis of Bavaria. When, therefore, the election of that monarch, in defiance of the Pope's remonstrances, was confirmed, John summoned him to lay down his authority, as he had not taken the oath of fealty and obedience to the papal see. This summons Louis refused to obey, upon which Pope John straightway excommunicated him and placed his dominions under an interdict. Thereupon the emperor had marched in great force upon Italy, got himself crowned King of the Romans in St. Peter's, and set up as anti-pope Peter of Corvara, a Franciscan friar. Then began a long struggle for supremacy between Pope and Emperor, in which each professed to depose the other, just as Gregory VII and Henry IV had done. At the date of Edward's invasion of France, Louis, advanced in years and enfeebled in mind and body, had become a prey to superstitious terrors, and on the accession of Pope John's successor, Benedict XII, in 1334, had made overtures of submission to the Church. Peter of Corvara, the anti-pope, was no more, having before his death confessed himself a heretic. The reigning pope, whose whole pontificate was a tacit reproach on the turbulence and avarice of his predecessor, 
would gladly have met the repentant emperor halfway, had not the jealous tyranny of the French king raised such obstacles that reconciliation became hopeless. For Benedict was wiser in speech than in deeds, and had not what the French call the courage of his opinions. The emperor at length resolved to espouse the English cause against France, a determination which was precipitated by the intelligence that Philip had already seized upon Cambrai and certain other towns belonging to the empire. It was in vain that the Pope wrote to Edward warning and entreating him not to imperil his soul by allying himself with a rebel under the ban of the church. A conference was arranged to take place between the king and the emperor at Koblenz, where the diet or meeting of the electors of the empire was about to be held. Edward attended with a numerous and costly retinue, and his progress from Antwerp thither may be minutely traced by a detailed statement, still extant, in the king's wardrobe book, of his lavish expenditure on the way. A throne was erected for each monarch in the marketplace, and there they took their seats, surrounded by seventeen thousand gentlemen, knights, nobles, and sovereigns, who owed fealty to the emperor. He held a scepter in his right hand and a globe in his left, while a knight on whom that honor devolved by inheritance held a drawn sword over his head. The ceremony began by the declaration of a protest against the pretensions of the Pope in claiming authority to annul the decision of the electors, whereas the imperial dignity and power came from God alone. Edward then rose and addressing the emperor as supreme over Christendom and things temporal, called him to witness that Philip, in defiance of justice, kept forcible possession of hereditary English territories in France, and usurped the crown of that country which belonged of right to himself as the inheritance of his mother. The German sovereign signified his assent to these charges, and declared that Philip, having also invaded the imperial fiefs, was deprived of all protection from the emperor till he had made restitution. He concluded by formally appointing the English king his vicar-general in all parts of the empire lying east of the Rhine, and ordering all the princes of the Low Countries to follow him in war for the space of seven years. End of section 11